Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Jordan Jarrett Bryan of Channel 4 News. Summer is a fast-fading memory. The nights are starting to draw in. Depressing, but at least the Champions League offers a diversion. Some think it's a foregone conclusion this year, a bauble to be picked up by state-supported clubs. I happen to think it'll be more open than that. The last club to retain the trophy was Real Madrid on their treble run between 2016 and 2018. Chelsea are fourth favourites this year. I suppose the question is, Jordan, can they defend that crown? Yes, is the, is the answer in short to that question, Mike. I mean, if they can win the Champions League without one of the best strikers in Europe, there's no reason to say why they can't defend it with one of the best strikers in, in Europe. So, yeah, they definitely can defend the title. I know we're going to get later on to our predictions as to who we think is going to win it. Slight spoiler here. I don't think Chelsea will defend the Champions League, personally. I think there are a couple of other teams I think I, I, I've got my money on. But this Chelsea team is a team that I think really wants to defend it. I think Roman Abramovich is doing a little bit of a willy-waving job here in the sense of, I think he wants to reassert himself as the biggest club and the best team in the Premier League and therefore in Europe as well. I think that the fact that Man City have come along the last few years and dominated the league, I think it irks him a little bit. I think he is the most successful owner in the Premier League since he's been in the Premier League. And I think that with the Lukaku signing, and the excesses of midfielders that they have, I think it's a, we want to not only retain the Champions League, we want to win back what he would see as his Premier League as well. So I, I'm quite interested to see how well Chelsea do this season. So yeah, I think they, they, they definitely can retain the Champions League. I, I just think there's a couple of the teams that are better suited this season to, to winning it. When we look at the development of the team, Migs, uh, obviously you know the focus is Lukaku, three goals in his first two games. It does give the team a different dimension. Is he already showing signs of understanding those around him? And that will obviously bring out the best in everyone, won't it? Yeah, it already feels like that. I, I, it was one of those signs. Everyone would see it when it was made. And basically, in, in contrast to when Lukaku signed for Manchester United four years ago, this just looked like something will fit. I think almost everyone said, yeah, this this is going to work out. And just, I suppose it's, it kind of points to the modern Champions League in that sense as well. I was thinking about this ahead of the Liverpool-Chelsea game and the way 
the different way these teams are built now. Lukaku is probably a rare example of, you know, a really, that kind of classic last jigsaw piece in one of these teams. Because, you know, most of the modern recent Champions League winners, unlike Liverpool, have actually been kind of these super squads that have been put together. Real Madrid were a classic example. Then a manager almost imposed on top of that who has to kind of figure this out. And that was initially the case of Tuchel now. Whereas this is a rare, they, they, they've kind of gone to the next level of one signing. Whereas I suppose, I mean, to, to go back again, and this was down to the history and structure of the cup where you had to, up until 2000 or 97 or so, win the league before you got into it. Teams were built in a more kind of gradual way, you know, putting in piece by piece by piece. And with the way clubs are built now, that's not really the case. And Chelsea had been an ultimate example of that what happened last season. Yeah, with this season, they it, it, it does feel Lukaku brings something different and brings them on another, another level as well. Yeah, um, you know, I put my hands up here. I distinguished myself when they sold him for 18 million or the sorry, they signed him for 18 million. And I thought with a touch like that, that wouldn't be a great investment. So I was absolutely bang on wrong on that one. But in general terms, Jordan, what struck me is how his development accelerated when he was in Italy. That one says about his temperament, doesn't it? His character, but also the way that he has worked on his technique. I think there's a guy there that was genuinely hurt and affected by, A, the comments from people like me, a lot of my WhatsApp groups that were battering him about his first touch. And let's be fair, his first touch for a while for a top, top, you know, top striker wasn't great. You know, it, it could have been it could have been better. I think he was hurt by a lot of the criticism that he received. And I think he saw a guy that was determined to prove everybody wrong. And he kind of alluded to that when he returned to Chelsea about how, you know, he's come back to show people, you know, that the striker that he always knew he could be. I think he's a striker that under Antonio Conte was given time, but also discipline. I think he was pushed, but I think he was also loved in Italy and, and into by, by Conte. And I think that is the recipe that I think he needed. I think something also as well is quite basic, which I think is an indictment on Manchester United in his time there, was he spoke about his diet. He spoke about something the nutritionist at Inter just very early on realised that he was, I've forgotten what he said it was, he was eating something that was causing him to just be overly bulky. And when he stopped eating that thing, we see the Lukaku physically now that, 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 that we do see. So I think the physical change in Lukaku is just as much a testament to his improvement as, as the kind of mental, psychological of just actually wanting to be better. You see a guy that I think his movement is intelligent. It always irks when people just talk about how powerful and strong he is. Those are two attributes that I think are very important. But I think you have a, a guy that actually, I, I didn't see an intelligent mover on the pitch that I see now. I see him taking up really good positions on the field. I think he's a lot more patient. So I think we are seeing a much more rounded and improved Lukaku now for sure. Yeah, and and what strikes me also, Megs, is that, is that Tuchel has unforgiving standards, doesn't he? You know, you saw that on Saturday with Saul, you know, being binned after 45 minutes. In that context, there's, there's still quite a lot of speculation about Timo Werner. You know, he might even be sold to Bayern next season. Is that credible? And, you know, here's a player who's got his own bloopers tape, hasn't he? Close range misses. Is that bound to shape perceptions of him, even though that might be unfair? Yeah, undeniably, just because it adds to... It can make a player a bit of a caricature. But the oddity of Werner is that 
first of all, none of this seems to affect him whatsoever because he's, he's got a remarkable perseverance. But also, for a player that misses those chances, Chelsea are actually a better team with Werner in the team, I think. Just because his pace offers something so different. And also it's pace with, you know, in, in I suppose, the classic modern terminology, he leads the press. And, and, and because he's so fast, it means Chelsea are on top of teams much quicker. And I, I, I do think he's a really important player for Chelsea, possibly just, be, just because of those standards you talk about with Tuchel and ultimately as, as fast as he is, you, you put on someone with the finished product as well. And there has been anticipation at Chelsea that eventually will come. It hasn't yet this season. Whether whether that becomes a kind of longer term issue, we'll see. But um, yeah, I I do think there is credibility in the reports. But at the same time, he's still got a huge value to Chelsea, and it's not like he's going to be dropped anytime soon. Yeah, is there an undervalued another un- undervalued aspect of Tuchel, Jordan? His influence on on getting that defense sorted out. I think it's twenty two clean sheets out of thirty five games under him. There does seem to be a bit more solidity to the team I don't think it's undervalued at all I think um, people are recognising now that the the reason behind the success of Chelsea last season and what we're seeing this season as well is the fact that he's been able to organise a a team I think the Liverpool game a couple of weeks ago is an example of a team that know what they're they're doing they know their shape they know their positioning they know know what their jobs are and they had the mentality to not want to concede goals it's something that my club could learn a thing or two and I think we saw when they were down to 10 men that actually they've almost enjoyed it. I watched that game in the second half thinking they were thinking, right, we've got 45 minutes and it's not about scoring a goal here. We've got 45 minutes. You lot ain't scoring. Liverpool, you, our job is solely to get out of here with a point. You're not scoring a goal. And I think you can only do that when you have a manager that has instilled a confidence, a repetitiveness of what to do in those scenarios. I get the impression that Tuchel sort of manager that in training, he does lots of 11 V9s, not even 11 V10s, 11 V9s. So you're, you're two men short and what to do and where to be. So I think his, his, his value to that team and what he's added defensively, I think you'd be silly now to not recognise that that is the basis of, of their success so far. When you put Lukaku on top of that, you've got a team that's very, very scary as far as I'm concerned. They begin, Megs, against Zenit. They're a bit ho-hum as an, as an opponent, aren't they? You know, regular qualifiers, they use the money to sustain domestic dominance, but you know, pretty much rarely troubled scorers. It's a pretty comfortable group Chelsea find themselves in, isn't it? Yeah, I think they'll get through with no problems. And even Juventus, given the start of the season they've had, given their, their, they seem to be, not just because Ronaldo, but Ronaldo's sale may be signifying it during a transition period. Zenit are an interesting one as well in that about a decade ago, maybe a little more, and kind of 2008, 2009, it looked like because of the amount of money in Russian football, which, you know, I suppose is typified by one of their richest oligarchs owning Chelsea, it looked like they could offer kind of a counterbalance to kind of to Western European power. But it never quite happened in that way. And yeah, you're right. They're kind of just, they're, they're at best these days, awkward Champions League opposition. And it should add up to a pretty forgiving group for Chelsea. Chelsea, Chelsea were actually the last champions not to get through the group, weren't they? In 2013, under, under Di Matteo and then Rafa, who won the Europa League. But can't see that happening this time. No, you mentioned Ronaldo there. Just stay with you for a second, Migs. You were there at Old Trafford. You know, Oligana Solskjaer seemed to sum it up quite nicely, where he just said, look, he does what he does. 
what else did we learn from his return from Old Trafford? And, and what did you get a sense of that occasion? Pure adulation. I, I, I hadn't been to a Premier League... Like, I've been to a Premier League fixture like that for a long time. You know, and not just because of the pandemic, but just when it was all about celebration of, of one person, basically. And even though they, they stayed afterwards demanding he come out on TV. Now, I suppose it wasn't complete adulation, given that I think it was about halfway through the game. I didn't see it myself, but I saw the reports of the, the, the plane going above referencing the Catherine Mayorga case. But other than that, I mean, even, even the, the trains up and the trains back at like 11 p.m., not just in, in Houston, but even when we go back to Victoria, you could hear the kind of Viva Ronaldo chant everywhere. In terms of kind of whether we learned anything, strangely not, but it actually re-emphasised the United still have some issues in that that midfield doesn't work. And it was almost like the Wolves game in that regard, in that had Newcastle had better finishers, it could have been a quite uncomfortable afternoon for United, but they didn't. And at the other end, unlike the Wolves game, and this probably is the main difference of Ronaldo, regardless of anything else you want to say about, you know, where he fits in the team or, you know, him and Bruno or, or whether you make United predictable, where he, but ultimately he'll bring certainty because anything around the 18-yard box, he's more likely than most players in the Premier League to take that chance. When we're talking about midfield, Jordan, obviously I have to speak about Paul Pogba. He looked on Saturday to have a better partnership with Burner Boy at Park Life than Matic at Old Trafford. He looks like he's going to run his contract down. Does Solskjaer almost now have to treat him as a bit of a free spirit? First of all, Mike, did you know who Burner Boy was before Saturday? Uh, yeah, I looked him up. <laughs> <laughs> Got all of his albums. I think that's a little bit harsh. I didn't think he was that bad on the weekend. And I spoke earlier on about Lukaku, I think, caring and being affected by what people had said about his performances previously. I think Pogba's the opposite. I don't think Pogba gives a damn what, about what people say about him. I don't think he cares how people critique him. I think in Paul Pogba, you've got a guy that's very confident in his own ability. And I think that he's coming into his own. I think that he now finally feels like his talents or the team around him are befitting of his talents and ability. And he feels now, oh, okay, now I've got people on my level, so you're going to really see the real me. I think he's got now seven or eight assists already. Yeah, seven. Yeah. Seven assists. And that, that's, a, that's a phenomenal start. So I, I, didn't, I didn't think he was... I thought he was okay. I thought he played really well. But I think you're going to see now the real Pogba, albeit five, six years maybe later than we hoped, that I think we, we thought we were going to see when he returns to the Premier League. Looking at United, in terms of balance, Migs, why play Jadon Sancho on the left instead of the right, which is you know, probably where he's suited? Now, I know Greenwood excelled there, but why pay all that money and not play the guy in his right position? Well, this is a slight issue they've got. Suddenly, they're absolutely stacked in all the attacking positions, and... We're Ronaldo on top of that, it's now going to be about getting those players in. And someone said it to me before, this could create a slight issue for Sancho because he is better on the right, but Greenwood is now the heir apparent and he will be favoured over anyone just behind Ronaldo, which, which basically creates a position on the left for the rest almost to come into. And given how much money they've spent on Sancho, the obvious main player there is going to be him even though it may not suit his best. Of course, it raises questions to the likes of the Rashford after that. 
but also for Pogba in that sense because Pogba, he, I mean, from what we've seen of him, mostly for United, some way for France, he, well, he's certainly best for United coming in off the left. But this is where it creates crush. And I'm, I, could, I disagree with Jordan. This one, I have to say, because United have so many attacking players now. And there's such a pressure to get them in. Yeah, and with, with this case, a clear example, it's going to be Sancho on the left. And it means there's going to be more pressure to play Pogba in a two, just so they can accommodate more of these players. But from, from what I'm told, and I suppose we can see it from so many of Solskjaer's selections over the past year and a half, certainly, he doesn't really trust Pogba in a two, particularly not in big games. He feels, the, the, the feeling is Pogba doesn't have the discipline to play there. It, all, it also, it doesn't allow him to kind of maximise his attacking qualities in the same way. And that's precisely why he so often goes with Fred and McConaughey. And it's why he also wanted Declan Rice or someone similar this summer who they didn't get. But it does feel like just almost by the pure conditioning of this squad, we're going to see Pogba in that central position more often. And as you say, Sancho, just because there's no other place to fit him, on, on, on the left. And it, it is the, it's the odd thing about that Saturday game. Even though it was a 4-1 win and it was such a kind of a day of celebration, you know, there were little issues here and there. And even before they got the goal, and the goal actually came from a rare moment where rather than someone trying to cross from Ronaldo, Greenwood took a shot. And that's, that's an interesting thing as well, because it, it, it was because of Ronaldo's heading strength and because he isn't as mobile as he used to be outside the box, they just kept trying to work crossing positions. Yeah, because of the arrangement of the team, because I suppose because opposition, def- opposition defences know what they're going to be up against, so many of those crosses, or, or sorry, sorry, so many of those crossing positions were worked to Aaron Wambasaka, who can really cross the ball. Ronaldo there will solve a lot of issues instantly, but there are little issues with the team, and, and among them, both the positioning of Pogba and Sancho. Can I, can I just add to that, Mike, and just very briefly say that I think that um, Sancho has been, has been screwed over by this Ronaldo signing. I would love to ask Sancho if he would have signed for United had he known Ronaldo was going to be there. Because I, 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 I do agree with, with, with Mix that uh, Greenwood is the golden boy, so I think he's the one that's going to be favoured now. But I think if Ronaldo hadn't have signed, I think Sancho would have got a lot more time than I think he will get now. So I, I think he's the loser. And all, all the talk of young players being desperate to play with Ronaldo because he's a professional, he's a legend of the game. I, I'm not, I don't know, but I would, I would love to ask Sancho quietly, if you'd have known Ronaldo was going there, would you have joined United still? I, I've got a feeling the answer might have been no. Mm, you know, as, as Mick said, Jordan, there's, a, there's an obvious, almost strategic need to get crosses in the box now. In that context, how important now is Luke Shaw to Manchester United? He almost seems now fundamental to the way they play. Luke Shaw was the player from England that came out of the Euros with the most credit for me. Because I, I thought he's had, a, he's had a real difficult two or three years, be it under Jose Mourinho, the injury that he had, you know, his weight problems. But I think he was the player that of all the England players, I came out thinking, OK, you're, you've definitely won me back round now. I think we saw a new Luke Shaw during the summer. I think we're seeing a continuation of that now. He's, he's, he's running with the ball a lot more than he was before. He would run and then give it up. Whereas now I'm seeing him run, take on players, beat players, want more on the ball. I, I think he could be a, a key weapon for United this season. And uh, for, for, for all the development that I've not seen in Aaron Wan-Bissaka on the other side, I am seeing development from Luke Shaw, for, you know, for sure. No, no pun there intended. That was a weird um, <laughs> accidental pun that I came out with. But um, 
I, I think he could slightly be, be, be a secret weapon for Manchester United. And I'm really glad to see him getting back to the player that I thought United had signed from Southampton all those years ago. Yeah. They play young boys in Bern on Wednesday, Migs. They beat uh, Zurich 4-0 on Saturday. But they're the sort of team one assumes that, that Ronaldo can dismantle with his movement. Can I just also link that in with another thought or observation? And you were there, so you'll know more more than most. Are we seeing now, you know, Joel Glazer was at Old Trafford at the weekend. Have the Glazers almost bought off the protests? I'd say they probably bought off widespread protest because I think what United, to be fair, there's always been that that core of hardcore support who will just will will never accept that on any level and they will always maintain a certain spirit among the support but yeah ultimately they have they've, they've completely bought off what what happens in, in April post super and I, I must say this is a general point beyond the United I, I I found the Super League at the time obviously it was a grotesque plan but very briefly it produced something that I found really really encouraging quite uplifting about football which is the way the game came together, the way it showed the power of supporters, and also the way it offered, it offered an opportunity for a bit of a reshaping of European football away from kind of the way it's going, which is towards superpowers. The way, I mean, we were talking even earlier with Chelsea and the construction of squads. And it feels like all of that has been squandered. As you said, we suddenly, it's all gone quiet around United. It's even, it's, in fact, it almost feels like there's the most descent around Spurs and Arsenal but for different reasons Chefferin has now basically you can see the, kind of the manoeuvres at the ECA over the past few weeks he, he said very strong words at the time but now it just feels superficial nothing's going to change about European football and we're, we're, we're still going to go towards a structure that ultimately favours the Super Bowl. and it, it does just feel the spirit that has been squandered all too quickly and I and it's also why this Champions League group stage is quite interesting because the hope, I suppose, is that we ha- we see a lot of groups that there is real con- kind of competitive variety to that. Even that say like a, a club like Al- Atlanta puts it up to United. That Chelsea do actually encounter some difficulties against Zenith. And that Liverpool's group has a very bit of competitive and uh, that we see a properly vibrant group stage because actually I, I, do, I do feel it's needed. Yeah, well, speaking of, of Liverpool's group, that does look tough on paper, at least. Jordan, the most distressing image, which thankfully you know, television did spare us from, was Harvey Elliott's injury. You know, we saw him being stretched off. It's one of those moments that basically leave you with a you know really awful feeling in the pit of your stomach. You know, a young player confronted suddenly and immediately with a with a, a very serious injury. The fallout from that, was Jurgen Klopp justified in his comments that, you know, it's one thing letting the game flow, but someone's going to get seriously hurt here, and that's what transpired? Yes, I think he is. I, I don't understand. I mean, so maybe somebody on this, on this uh, pod can explain better to me, but I don't understand why they've allowed this rule to kind of, or they've implemented this rule of allowing play to go on longer than it needs to if we know there's been an offside or it's been a foul to let the phase of play finish I think somebody is going to get seriously hurt I thought Jamie Redknapp made a really interesting point though in the post-match analysis of the game where he talked about the rules saying 
he was sent off, I believe, because you know, endangered an opponent. But he made the point that by default, most tackles can endanger an opponent. So if you're going to have that as a rule or a mitigating reason to actually penalise an individual, then you're going to have to stop slide tackling. You have to stop what? You have to stop all kind of tackles where you any kind of force off off the ground. That rule, I think, needs to be looked at for sure. But it was very distressing seeing seeing Elliot in that case, in that situation. The signs that I've heard this morning are that it's not as bad as it could have been. It's a clean break from what, I don't know what that means, but it's it's not a complicated break. It's a clean break, which I'm told is a good thing. So I, 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 I'd be surprised if you see him play this season again, but I don't think it's career ending. But I definitely think they need to look at the rules surrounding what constitutes dangerous play, endangering a, an opponent, and how long they allow play to go on before calling back certain things. I suppose what was also really striking from that incident was the the remorse, almost to the point of horror, that was felt by Strike, who was responsible for the tackle. I suppose also that you can be reckless without meaning to hurt someone, but you're still reckless in the first place. Yeah, that's that's oh completely. In fact, I, I remember this becoming a huge issue around when Eduardo suffered that injury in two thousand and eight. And the and the, I remember, funnily enough, I remember doing a piece that I went back when I worked in in Dublin for an Irish newspaper, and talking to I think it was a karate or taekwondo expert who literally said, football is actually the most dangerous sport in the world because there is no definition of rules on tackling, and while most of the time that's fine, it, occasionally you're going to get it's just a tangle of legs, and that is why it could be one of the potential unintended consequences of this whole let it flow directive. Which has basically been the kind of, the, you know, the, the guiding referee advice for this Premier League season. Uh, Ken Early has actually done an excellent article on it this morning for the Irish Times about uh, precisely the consequence of this. And once you let it flow, it does it can create a free for all, which can foster an unintentional recklessness because suddenly players automatically have more license to go in for kind of for heavier tackles. And he, he made the point about how, um, I think it's, 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 people should check it out, it's really worth it, it's worth reading. But um, it, it almost feels like around English, well, even still, even after kind of all the advances the last few years, there's, there's this inherent almost kind of nostalgia for an age where football was a tougher tackling game, where it was like, it just, you know, there's no real abrasiveness to it. He pointed out how, you know, when, when these rules reigned, at any point from basically the 60s to the 90s, Elliot actually probably wouldn't have cut inside in the way he did because he could have, he would have known, you know, players of that era would have known of the inherent danger going through because someone could come through the back of you. Whereas obviously up until recently, or, or well, still theoretically, the rules should forbid that. Whereas now in the, in the, with the whole Let It Flow directive, suddenly it's almost as if it kind of a fosters and a new freedom to how you challenge. Mm. I suppose you know, the other thing, the takeaway from me from the actual game in a competitive sense, Jordan, Mo Salah, second African player to reach 100 Premier League goals after Didier Drogba, who for me is still one of the greats. Do we take him for granted a bit? A little bit. A little bit. I think we do. I think that his 100 goals have almost crept up on a lot of people this, this weekend. I think the numbers, I saw, I saw some kind of stats comparison with him and Ronaldo around, I think it was Premier League, it wasn't Premier League goals, it was some stat, and it kind of put into context how, how prolific Salah has been in the time that he's, he's been he's been in the Premier League. I think he's a player, that, and let's not forget, he's on out-and-out striker as well. 
I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. I think he will sign a contract to Liverpool and, and extend his stay here. And, and I think that you, you mentioned him being the second African player to reach 100. I don't think many people in this country realise how big he is on the continent of Africa. He's an absolute superstar on a par with, I, I would go as far as to say anything that, you know, that Beckham has done in, in, in this country and, you know, you know, Ronaldo is in Portugal. He's an absolute god alongside the likes of Drogba and, and Yaya Torre. His influence is huge there. In particular, in North Africa, there's this kind of cultural divide that's not spoken about between North Africa and the rest of the continent. But that's a separate thing, a separate podcast. But he's an absolute god on the continent there as well. And I think that we should appreciate what he's doing here in Liverpool. Because he doesn't really go... He, he does his job just quietly, just scores goals. You know, OK, there was that thing with the agent recently. And every now and again, the contract thing pops up. But he doesn't cause any dramas. He doesn't cause any any issues. You never hear about him be, be, being an issue or being a problem. He just scores his goals, does his job and racks up the numbers. I, I think people need to start respecting Mohamed Salah a little bit more for sure. Mm. There's bound to be another evocative occasion at Anfield against Milan in midweek, Migs. A certain Zlatan Ibrahimovic will be turning up. I know he's going for the divine ponytail look. You've seen one old boy do well. What about another old boy turning up at Anfield? He's always been a very talented, very good player. That's not in question. But the whole persona and everything around him, I don't mean the very... The very, the very, the very, there's very, very few things in football that have irritated me more. And I, and I, like Jack Pitt brought my way the point to me when we were in Poland last week watching the England game. Someone like Lewandowski actually puts Zlatan to shame. This is a guy who's achieved much more, has actually won the Champions League in a way that Zlatan hasn't, and just kept going, had sustained excellence for over a decade. And he doesn't have to go on with all this nonsense about being a lion or whatever. That does boring uh, PR around himself. Again, in saying that. You can't deny that Zlatan is a supremely effective player, even at this age. Now, I suppose the one concern for this game is that I expected maybe a little more from Milan when they played Manchester United in the Europa League earlier this year. And United ended up beating them relatively comfortably. Uh, Milan are an interesting team now in that they're a club that's basically, you know, I suppose allied to everything we're talking about here, where you've got a group of super clubs who basically dominate the Champions League and then the rest all trying to figure out a way to adapt that. Milan are doing something interesting in that they're going to complete opposite direction, looking to completely strip down. It's almost like the Leipzig model of sign, sign young players and try and play very modern football as a consequence of having those young players. Now, there are questions about their ownership as well, given it's a, an investment fund. And of course, Zlatan would stand against that view view. But I think one of the kind of elements of this model is the odd experienced player among so much you just to offer a bit of balance. So I think they're, what they've got to do as a team is really interesting. You could almost argue that football needs a strong Milan or at least more kind of stronger counterbalances to what we've got right now. But it's possibly too soon for them to trouble Liverpool even with that. And I, I expect Liverpool to win this relatively comfortably. Yeah, mentioning Leipzig there, Jordan, they're going to be at Manchester City on Wednesday night. Leipzig was swept away by Bayern on Saturday 4-1 at home. When you look at Manchester City, Pep has already come out and said, look, we should be scoring more goals. They're making the chances. Where are City, do you think, at the moment in terms of the, 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 the big picture in Europe? 
I was thinking last night about Manchester City, because I'm a weirdo, and them, <laughs> the cha- them in the Champions League, and whether they're actually going to win this Champions League under Pep. And I just wonder, without getting all kind of satirical and, and spiritual and deep, if it's ever going to happen for them under Pep. And I, I don't think it will. And, I, and I'm quite keen to see how they respond in the Champions League to that defeat to Chelsea in the final last season. I wonder if there's, a, if there's any percentage of those players and manager might say, you know what? Let's just dominate the Premier League. Let's just win eight out of ten Premier Leagues. Let's just be the greatest team that England's ever seen. And hey, if we do well in the Champions League, we we, we do well. If we don't, uh, we don't have the owners. will have different thoughts, of course. But I wonder if the players are thinking, well, we had the, the best possible chance of winning the Champions League last season, and it didn't happen for for, for a multitude of reasons. And and how and how much that defeat has dampened their drive. I mean, it may go the other way. It may make them even more hungry than ever to win the Champions League. But I think it's a group that, even with PSG in it, I'd expect City to, to top. I, I don't know if you guys disagree. I, I think City will be thinking we, we should be topping this group. We're better than PSG. We should be topping this group. But how important topping the group, actually, I don't know, is this year. Because the groups, are, I find, are relatively evenly balanced. All the groups, I think, are quite, you know, there's two top teams at least in every group, from what I can remember. So coming second actually might be a blessing. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm keen to see how they, how they bounce back. So I'm keen to see how, how Pep reacts to that defeat last year. But I've just got this gut feeling that it's not going to happen for them in Europe and if they might just turn their attention to just wanting to be the best team in the Premier League. Just on that, I, I think it's a really fascinating thing, what happened in last season's final. Now, this is the trophy that... Guardiola wants above anything else he, and he, he'll know that if he doesn't win it especially after Bayern it will always be a caveat in his career having gone to one of the richest clubs on the planet but that, that also explains what he did in last season's final now I know there's been a lot of commentary that he's trying to be too clever trying to prove his genius I don't think that's the case I think it's the opposite I think the Champions League actually make it, he's got such a neurosis about it now with that going way back that goes to kind of Barcelona's history in it before they won in 92 that he kind of, he, 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 it's almost like, he, he, it's, it's almost, there's almost a Greek tragedy element that he, he, he does things to try and prevent it, to try and, to try and bring success, but actually make success less likely. And it's why, as this season, it's not an issue right now, but as this season progresses, I think it could be a very, very interesting thing with City and how the players see this team in the Champions League and this manager, because ultimately his approach caused them to have one of their worst performances of the season in arguably the biggest game of their lives. And I've like speaking to a coaches since then, a, you know, a, a, one absolutely top European coach, I know for, I said for a fact after that final, that's the one thing you absolutely don't do going into games like that. You don't destabilise your team. And that's what he did. And that could have longer term repercussions. And I think that, that now we've moved on from kind of Guardiola's long quest for the Champions League, which has basically defined City's last few years, to now, this season, I think how they react to what happened now they finally got to a final. Yeah, I found it quite ironic at the weekend. Pep was praising Bernardo Silva. In a, in a parallel universe, he could quite easily have been a victim of a successful bid for Harry Kane because he would have probably been shunted along as a, as a make-weight. City's team building, Jordan, does it convince you? Well, just on Silva, first of all, I, I find his form of the last two years now interesting because at one point he was up for player there was strong talk from winning i've forgotten who won it that year i think it was a year before van dyke won player of the year 
and Silva was up for it. I think it was the Sterling won it. Did Sterling win it the year before Van Dyke won it? I've got that right. Anyway, there was a season three years ago as Silva was being talked about as a candidate for Player of the Year. And he was phenomenal that year. And the two seasons since, he's really fallen off a cliff for me. And I wonder if there's any correlation with the incident with the Benjamin Mendy tweet. Because since then, he's not quite been the, the same player around that kind of time. And I, I was a really big fan. I'm a big fan of Bernardo Silva. I'd have loved him at Arsenal when there was some loose talk of him coming in. But we hopefully with the goal he scored, and we, you know, we can see an upturning form from him going this season. I think he's a phenomenal player. In terms of their team building, I had City to win the title this season just before the window closed. And I was quite adamant that even without an out and out striker, I know they have Jesus, but even without uh, signing a striker, I still thought they'd be okay. I'm actually wondering now if I might have to revise that, that prediction because, and if Pep Guardiola will regret not bringing in a striker, because it was mentioned on a podcast yesterday that even if you bring in someone like a Danny Ings, there's at least 15 goals there. In that team, with his predatory movement in the box, Danny Ings is getting at least 15 goals in that Manchester City team. So why not even, you know, throw 25 million at, at uh, Southampton for him? And I think that may actually come back to bite them. They're banking on the fact, hopefully, that Sterling will get 10, Torres will get 12, De Bruyne will get 12, Jesus will get 15, and that will make up the difference. But I think their team building may be undermined by the fact that they haven't gone for an out and out striker. And, you know, Miggs, I think, has followed Bonnie Pep's career more closely than me. Maybe this is the team that Pep always wanted to not have a striker and just have lots of fluid play players moving that can all contribute goals. But I think with Ronaldo at United and Lukaku at Chelsea, I just wonder if they may regret not getting any striker in, let alone a top, top striker. Yeah, they've been linked, obviously, with, with Haaland and, and actually Bellingham over the weekend. Predictably enough, when you look at their performances in Dortmund's. 4-3 win at Leverkusen, and, you know, that reinforced to me the inevitability of their moves. While we're on Germany or German football mix, Bayern, does their domestic dominance give them an opportunity in terms of, you know, wrap up the Bundesliga relatively early so that they can concentrate on the latter stages of the Champions League? But that was one of the kind of, again, one of the, again, pointing to how European football has been going. This is one of the debates of the last decade where the, the question of whether it's better to have a free run from a title already won or else whether actually a title race keeps the kind of necessary tension that actually, with a classic example, that, that of course, being Manchester United in 99, where every single fixture being having something on it just maintain this extraordinary level of competitiveness. I think I suppose it depends on the team. With Bayern, I I generally wouldn't have any question about their um the, the, their ability to rise to it, no matter what situation they're in. I must say, well, I think where where you're right, where we'll give them an advantage, especially given how congested the Premier League can be, and if as as we hope, this will actually this could be a Premier League season with three or even four way title race that goes right to the wire. That could offer Bayern an advantage because they'll be much fresher physically, whatever about mentally. It'll be, it'll be interesting. I mean. Obviously, the, the, their immense success in 2020 was down to the, the introduction of uh, Hansi Flick halfway through the season. Nagelsmann is obviously one of the best young coaches in the world, but it'll be interesting to see how quickly he adapts in that regard. Because I suppose maybe there are some questions about him in Europe, given... Um, I mean, they did get to the semi-finals two years ago in Leipzig, but then it followed up with getting battered by Solskjaer's United last year in what felt a slightly naive performance in the way they kind of just opened up and got picked off. But of course, Leipzig are a team built 
very differently to Bayern Munich. So I'm interested in how he'll adapt a little. But they've still got high quality. They've still got Lewandowski, and they're, they're, they're going to be there. In fact, it does feel like this season could welcome down to the English clubs, Bayern Munich or Paris Saint-Germain. Yeah, when you look at Bayern, they, they start at Barcelona on Tuesday. Obvious memories of the 8-2 there, Jordan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, wouldn't surprise me again if if this is another 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 beatdown. Uh, maybe not to, to 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 those kind of lengths, but I, I don't see any reason. I, I, I think Barca are in trouble. I know they're kind of ground zero of their rebuild of the team, but I think they're playing a team that is very much confident and set in who they are, what they're doing. They're warm. I I I, I can't see anything apart from a, a Bayern Munich win in this game here. And just kind of to add on Mick's previous answer, previous question, I always think it's better going into the latter parts of competitions warm. And when you do have games on it, I'm not so sure it's an advantage having massive, you know, long period of days off. I, I don't think you want that. However, this year might be interesting because with the European Championships having happened just, what, a month or so ago, the, the, a lot of Premier League players went to the latter part, obviously the final with England and obviously Jorginho with Italy as well. So I'm not sure if this is this may be the one year where having a break and having the title wrapped up may actually be beneficial to, to a Champions League run. The other tie that stands out for me is Inter at home to Real Madrid. Madrid are obviously in wait and see mode, Migs, before the summer splurge next year. Am I reading that right? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. In fact, I think Spanish football as a whole is in a much of a interesting position, but maybe a slightly concerning one, in that, like Syria 20 years ago, I've, I've, I've spent most of the weekend on this, I've done, I've done a piece on it this morning, but uh, like Syria 20 years ago, it's basically, it's very suddenly lost its position of supremacy. From a, I mean, there's actually, there's never been a, a spell of dominance by one league like Spain in 2013 to 2018. That even surpasses... Syria in the 90s and of course leading that was Real Madrid of four Champions Leagues they 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 they, end, they, they won just La Liga won 90% of the European trophies across that five-year period now it's a short period and without a cup winners cup like the past but that's still incredible for incredible concentration success with Madrid leading the way but of course this is a very different Madrid team to that where it just doesn't have the star power. In fact, the only stars in the team are almost kind of those in the downslope of their career who were in that 2013-18 to 18 side, like Modric, Kroos uh, and Benzema. And it points to kind of maybe slight staleness in Spanish football as a whole. I mean, talk to people around European football, people who work in the market. There is a little bit of a disregard for Spanish football now. Now, it's why Mape could have been so important this summer because he just would have changed everything. Now, of course, there's a lot of people who wonder how serious their bid was this summer, given the financial problems in Spain that have led to this and it was all just deployed to, to secure them on a free next year. But yeah, it is wait and see. I mean, okay, clubs like Madrid, there is a, there's always going to be a certain muscle memory there, but they were really poor against Chelsea in the semi-finals. Liverpool under, underperformed and beaten by them in the quarters. And I wouldn't hold out, hold out much hope from that regard with the same applied to Barcelona. In fact, this could be, after so much success, a fallow year for Spanish clubs in general. Mm. What about... Um... Italy in general, Jordan, standards in Syria, huh? I mean, yeah, I mean, the, 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 big, the big guns there, Juventus, will, will, be, will be flying the flag for, for Syria. Uh, 
I, I, I'm not sure how seriously I'm taking Juventus in, in this competition. Personally. Not had a good start, have they? No, I, I think they're probably still trying to find their feet after Ronaldo leave as, as left. And I think actually that might be a blessing. And Chiellini seems to seems to agree with that, some, according to his, his uh, quotes over the weekend as well. You know, Atalanta are the kind of like the, 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 the hipsters, I know everyone hates that phrase, but the hipsters kind of choice, the team that might bloody a few noses. And I, I like what they're about, what they're producing in, in Serie A as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not looking too much over Italy to do, to do too much in the European stage, if I'm being honest. Okay, then, well, that sets us up nicely for the um, put your head up above the parapet time. Predictions, chaps. Who's going to win the Champions League this season? I'll go Liverpool. I'm going to go for, and I, I feel horrible saying this, but I'm going to go for Manchester United. And I'm going to slightly contradict what I said earlier on about um, English clubs, you know, having burnout from a long season last year and the, the Euros. I think that United have the manager and the, and the team that work in moments. And I think in a cup competition, I think moments are much more valuable than in the league. I, I've, I think I've not got United in my top three for the Premier League. But I do think they'll win the Champions League. Interesting. I, I go with, with Migs. I, I think Liverpool will win. Now, the life cycle of this team will probably end in 2024 when Jurgen Klopp may well walk away, his head held very high. As I said, if they can avoid their injury jinx and perhaps keep the emotions in check, if this could be their year. What about you? Please let me know what you feel. In the meantime, thanks to Jordan and Miguel for their insight. And thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.